Paul told about an experience he had having been caught up in the paradise. And last week we talked about the fact that it was not legal for him to tell what he saw. And then we mentioned that there was a lot of literature, both in the ancient world and in today's world, where people write about uh, experiences of being caught up into paradise and that the literature is not believable and it's not legitimate. That, that was summarized last week. Okay, let's get started. I want to uh, start us with prayer, okay? Heavenly Father, thank you for another Sunday to gather together with your little flock and open up the scriptures together, fellowship around the means of grace, to pray and, Lord, worship and to seek you. We pray that today as we study very interesting passage of scriptures, that, that you give us wisdom. And we pray for the ones who listen out around the world and the Internet. Lord, bless them and protect them from harm and help them find fellowship, uh, which they so long for. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So we go from Paul's experience with paradise, then we will transition to uh, the thorn in the flesh, and that always makes an interesting discussion. 2 Corinthians 12.5, on behalf of such a man, for those of you who weren't here last week, we're saying that the third person, the third person is used here, not because it was some other person who actually had the experience, but because Paul uh, doesn't even want to talk about it, and he doesn't really like to talk about himself, and so he uses the third person in the sense to uh, verbally distance himself, and then he applies it to himself because of the thorn in the flesh. On behalf of such a man, Paul, in his visionary experience, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. All right, so there's some irony going on here. Some people said, well, let's see, it had to be a different person because it was this other man, not me. But this is irony because his opponents were boasting in their visionary experiences. And so in order to show that that's not unique to them, Paul had an actual legitimate one that he told, but he wouldn't tell what it was. And he wouldn't tell what he saw. I'm going to quote Garland on this. Private mystical experiences have no value for the church. And I'm going to repeat that. I'm totally agreeing with what he says. Private mystical experiences have no value for the church because they cannot be adequately communicated to others. They are useless in trying to make arguments in a public forum that requires logical argument. The danger of basing teaching on private heavenly revelations is that it will create a division between those blessed with such visions and the rank rank and file who are not. Matthew 28, 19-20 makes clear, says Garland, that the teaching of the church is based on what Jesus had already commanded on earth, not on the latest visions from paradise. What does it say, Matthew 28? Teaching them to observe whatsoever I commanded you. Jesus ordained that his apostles would receive the new covenant teachings directly from him, physically, audibly, not by a visionary 
experience. All right? And Paul himself claims to have seen the resurrected Christ, and from the resurrected Christ, tangibly, he received the teachings that he wrote eventually become a lot of our New Testament. A visionary experience is not adequate for that, for teaching. Now, Garland made a good point, which we underscored last week when I brought a book from a, written by a guy who claims such an experience, and he wrote a book about it, and he claims that that gives him higher status. No, we don't have status based on mystical experiences or visions that cannot be verified. How can anybody prove whether this guy saw what he said he saw in heaven? Or he didn't. How can he prove it? How can he debate it? All he can do is show that what he saw is not biblical, and therefore you don't listen to any of it. But if you're going to open the door to that for the teaching of the church, then you just as well listen to Joseph Smith. He claimed some sort of experience, and and the door is open to everything, anything, no matter what. Yeah. I think that passage in Matthew is probably worth uh, reading. Yeah, go please uh, do. Matthew 28, uh, verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. All right, so there's the Great Commission to teach what Jesus commanded. So that's very important, very, very important. If you just got rid of people's claims of personal revelation, you get rid of half of the Christian religion going on in, in America. And the whole entire Apostle of Prophets movement would go away. The Word of Faith movement would go away. An awful lot of charismatics would have to change their belief. Not all. There are some conservative charismatics, and I acknowledge there are just as they're conservative Pentecostals. And I don't want to, you know, paint everybody with the same brush, but that sort of thing goes through those circles. Okay? Although now it's really branching out to just about everywhere. Verse 6. So Paul is going to, verse 5, he's going to boast in his weaknesses, not in his visions. Because the weaknesses are something that God uses in a powerful way. Verse 6, For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this, so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me and hears from me. What they see and hear is Paul in his weakness in the gospel that he preaches. All right? Paul in his weakness... And the gospel. His weaknesses are mostly the result of his preaching. Remember chapter 11. We went through the whole litany of things that happened to Paul that caused him to be beaten to pieces, whipped so many times, or scourged, beaten with rods, shipwrecked, hunger, deprivation, dangers, burdens, all of that created a weak Paul. But he, why did he do that? Well, to spread the gospel around the world. So as his mission to preach the gospel created at least some of the weaknesses um, and difficulties that he went through. I have a quote here. Then we'll get into the thorn in the flesh discussion. 
566. Here's a good summary by Barnett. This part, this part verse, when taken with 5, 11 through 13, is important in establishing pointers to authentic Christian ministry. While individuals may, in the purposes of God, undergo various religious experiences, those experiences are between the person and God. I'm going to repeat that. They're between the person and God. And do not themselves establish fitness for pastoral or missionary ministry. Based on these texts, the, legitimate, the legitimating criteria include preaching Christ, 512, which is not deterred by suffering of weakness, 12.5, expressed out of a right mind, 5.13. No one is to be judged beyond or apart what one can, what sees or hears from that person, 12.6b. What one sees and hears from that minister is critical. This is absolutely right, absolutely right. That's how you judge spirits. Remember a couple of weeks ago, I brought a material about judging spirits? You listen, you, what you see and what you hear, okay? What you see and what you hear. Do you see self-aggrandizement? Do you see pompous demeanor? Do you see inappropriate behavior? Do you see lording it over the flock? Do you see abusing the flock? Well, then it's wrong. I don't care how many visions they revelations they had. Do you hear something that's not the gospel? Do you hear false teaching? Do you hear things that just don't add up? Do you hear a situation where when you go to the preacher and say, okay, let's open a scripture here. I'm not so sure what you're teaching is correct. I want to look at the scripture and see if this is right. And the preacher says, how dare you question me? What just happened? Okay, now this happens all the time because I get emails. Now what just happened? What happened is the, the preacher or pastor or whoever it was just set themselves up to be a human authority greater than the Bible. The Bible cannot correct me because I'm in authority. So you might as well go back to Rome if you're going to do that. Uh, Patrick. Oh, no, Keith. Uh, either way. <laughs> Patrick and Keith. <laughs> so are we... You just made a general claim. Are we exempting Paul from this claim because his vision was public and attested to by witnesses? No, he didn't say what his vision was. On the road to Damascus, I mean. Oh, yeah, that was attested by witnesses. And, what's that? Hostile. Yeah, hostile witnesses. And that was part of his conversion. And so he was telling how he was converted. Right. So if someone today was converted in that way, would be be okay with it? Uh, as long as you end up with the right gospel. Okay, let me tell you a story that I heard from a guy who was a supporter of Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran in the late 70s. The guy's name is Daniel Shiesta. All right? He, we had him on a radio show once, in fact. He was going to die. He was locked up by, after he helped Khomeini get in the office, Somebody didn't like him, so they locked him up, him and a couple other guys, and the other ones were executed, and he was going to be executed, just for whatever reason. And they gave him a Quran, and he was in his little cell, just a little light coming in, he's reading a Quran, and he decided the Quran was bogus. He said, there's no way this is right. This is not right, and I, I cannot believe this. Somebody allowed, helped him out, helped him out of that jail, so I gave him favor, and he fled the country and went to Turkey. And when he got to Turkey, 
he got an education and became a kind of a professor, but he, he was, went into business with a Christian. Bad idea. <laughs> the Christians will rob you first. Anyhow, he went into business with a Christian, and the Christian ran off with 10000 of his dollars. Took his money and ran off. Okay? But the only, and, he, and the guy went off to another country, so Daniel didn't know what to do. So he wanted to try to get his money back, so he started going to the church that he knew that that guy went to before he ran off with his money. And he's going to church and hearing the gospel and just didn't pay a whole lot of attention to it. But one time he had a dream, and the, the content of the dream had something to do with his father's house and I don't know, whatever. He had this dream, all right? Then he goes back to that church the next Sunday, trying to see hopefully that guy will be there. And a guest evangelist preached, and his sermon was on the very topic of the dream he'd had. And he believed that it was from God, and he believed the gospel, and he was converted. And he has a ministry. He's in Australia now as a professor, but he has a ministry. And wonderful guy. I don't see anything wrong with telling that story. Does that mean you can believe every dream you ever have? No. But, see, we need to distinguish between God's providential will and his moral will. Providentially, God can work however he sees fit to convert somebody or to lead them to the gospel. Like in my case, there was a miracle that happened in my conversion that I wouldn't count on ever happening again. I don't think it's wrong to tell it. Yeah. No, I'm just thinking that the vision that Paul had on the road to Damascus wasn't a heavenly vision in the sense he's calling, talking about here. He didn't go up to heaven. He didn't claim to be go up. But he's sitting on the road, and Jesus came to him, and Jesus appeared to him yeah. in the flesh, and the other people around saw the light, heard the sound, and when he was prayed for, physical things came off of his eyes that fell on the ground. So it was a different kind of He's not claiming a new revelation. Yeah. He was just claiming that this was Jesus Christ, whom he was persecuting, so he knew which one it was because yeah. he was standing against it. Well, to but he, but he no, but he was. It wasn't. He was the, the gospel. Every, everybody, John, Peter, James, everybody was testifying to the same Jesus that he saw. It wasn't a new Jesus. He didn't tell him something, something uh, new in terms yeah. of what was happening in heaven. Well, even you take uh, back to Craig. Um, Think of Peter's vision about a sheet that came down. It really wasn't a new revelation because Mark says that Jesus declared all foods clean and Jesus told them in Luke that he was sending them to the nations to preach the gospel, right? So the vision was confirming what he already knew to be true. It wasn't adding new information. It was just getting Peter to believe the old information. (laughs) Patrick, you are a skeptic. Go ahead. Just a, yeah. it, <laughs> Is it a, in First Corinthians, where where Paul says that he saw Christ, he said, "Last of all, he appeared to him." Would that be a yeah? As one born out of season, and yeah. it's the end of a series. End of a series. Then, 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 last of all is the end of a series. So we're not going to expect that to happen, okay? And these guys were apostles. All right, so I would say there's something unique about apostles compared to guys running around today claiming this. Now, if somebody has a testimony where they say some extraordinary thing happened and the result of the extraordinary thing is they went and believed the gospel, I would say, fine, that's God's providence. God can do whatever he wants. It doesn't give them anything but the gospel. It doesn't give them any new revelation or any new teaching. 
It was extraordinary that when I was, when Diane was witnessing to me that she, she, the Bible kept falling open to pages of things she was talking about. And I don't know why God did that. I didn't deserve it. I deserved to be sent right to hell. Not have him do some special providential thing so that I'd listen to the gospel. But the end result was the gospel. It's nothing more than nothing less. All right? Now somebody says, well, Kenneth Hagin says, I was caught up to heaven and I talked to Jesus. And when I got there, Jesus told me that he wants every Christian to be wealthy. And the only reason they're not wealthy is they won't let Jesus make them wealthy. Okay, now... That's new information. That's not in the Bible. And we can't believe somebody's doctrine based on a claim of a heavenly vision. Getting back to the thing where it says here, so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. If you look at what happened in Philippians, where you have people with bad motives, evil intent, trying to harm Paul by preaching the true gospel, he rejoices. In as much as you listen to what they're saying and compare that to what's true in scriptures, you will be saved, but you still don't want to follow the guys that are wicked. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a good policy, and I, I follow that policy myself. The next CAC article I'm going to write is going to have to do with a guy who's introducing spiritual disciplines to the Reformed uh, Gospel in a Reformed seminary. And I'm going to very strongly disagree with this guy. But he does have the right gospel in his book. And for that, I've got to rejoice. Because if the gospel's in the book, then that's not the same as that one I showed you last week from Rick Joyner. There's no gospel in that book. Absolutely none. It's a different religion. So I can rejoice that the gospel's in a book, but that doesn't mean we can't correct the false part of it. Okay? Yes? I was thinking, you know, there's a big difference between a dream that helps lead you towards your conversion and a vision of heaven where you go up there and now you are given authority to preach something different than yeah. what was given in the Bible. Yeah, God, that God never chose to reveal. I wish there was an easy, quick way to get the idea of providence into every single Christian's heart and mind. <laughs> There, there's, that's a, it seems like one of the hardest doctrines for people to comprehend, but it's one of the most important ones. If you want to learn that doctrine, okay, I'm going to, uh, uh, the doctrine of providence, I'm going to recommend a book. It's The Invisible Hand by R.C. Sproul. Best book on providence I have ever read. Now let me say something else quick, okay? Just, let me tell you something else. I've been wanting to do this, and I never have time in my sermon. I'd rather do it up there, but I don't have time because my time is all figured out. We need to quit the practice of refusing to listen to somebody because there's one thing we disagree with them about. That, that is just, that, I'll tell you what that is. It's dumb. Yeah, it's parochial. And, okay, you know, I... My, it's my obligation as a pastor to bring you the best teaching, the most biblical teaching, the best insights, the best understanding of the Bible that I have access to. And if I decide, well, I'm not going to listen to Mr. Barnett because I found out he's a Lutheran. I don't know what he is. And I'm not going to listen to Garland because he's uh, whatever he is. And I'm not going to listen to Sproul because I don't agree with his eschatology. And I'm not going to listen to this guy because I don't agree with that. You're going to throw away 90% of the Christian library. You're going to throw out most of the teachers in the history of the church, all of whom could help you understand the Bible. All right? 
just because R.C. Sproul has a great book on providence doesn't mean I'm going to become a preterist or an amillennialist. It's not going to happen. He's dead wrong. He doesn't know what he's talking about. But he has a good doctrine of providence. And learning the providence from R.C. Sproul is not going to make you a replacement theologian. It won't hurt you. It will help you. Okay? So, uh, well, this Kenneth Bailey. Let me say another thing. You know, I've been promoting this, this Bailey, Kenneth Bailey. A lot of you have read those books, and they're good, are they not? Okay? Somebody says to me, oh, I don't know about this Bailey. He's, he, he used the term Eucharist. Is it, well, maybe he's Catholic. Well, as a matter of fact, here's something you need to know. The term Eucharist is just a theological term for the Lord's Supper. Okay? The Catholic doctrine of the Eucharist is their abuse of the term. But the, but the term, you, if you read a theology book, just means the Lord's Supper. It turns out Bailey's a Presbyterian. He doesn't believe in the Eucharistic Christ. That's just his way of saying the Lord's Supper. Does that make sense? Okay. I don't know. It would be terrible if all we do is listen to people that agree with us on absolutely everything. And when it comes to archaeology, languages, Hebrew, Greek, stuff, you could learn from non-Christians. Yeah, there's tons of stuff you can learn from history. You can learn from non-Christians. Because those things are not spiritual in the sense of, like, theology. They're just the tool you need to get to the Bible and understand it. So I would recommend everyone in this congregation to have a hunger for the truth, to love the truth, and to search out the truth, and to gain it wherever you could get it from people and not put a paint them with, oh, there's a Lutheran. I'd better not listen to a word he says. Shouldn't do that. All right. Sorry, Gretchen, you were very patient. <laughs> well, this is just a minor, so no big deal. Um, in 1994, at Mac Hammond's church, I was converted by the word and work of Jesus yes. through the gospel. And for that, I'm eternally grateful. But uh, a few months later, one of the muckety-mucks that they had come in and speak and you know, I'm, I'm getting old and forgetful, but I thought it was Oral Roberts, but maybe it was Kenneth Hagin. But I remember in that service, see, Mac Hammond is a real wealthy guy, which I don't hold against him. You know, I don't I mean to fight fault. But, see, he flashes all his diamonds and stuff, and whoever this muckety-muck was, he said, okay, I want each of you to hold up your wallets and have... Have the Lord bless you with wealth. Well, of course I held up my wallet, but God's providence was I didn't get wealthy. Now, (laughs) my point is that if I had gotten wealthy, I probably would have been confused about stuff. Yeah, you would have been. Gretchen, that is very good. That is very good. Very good insight. Because... If, if you're going to a, uh, a church that teaches false doctrine and some miracle happens for you, you're even more deceived. Okay? Because then, you, then you're going to believe everything that they say. Yeah, it, it's God's grace that it doesn't work. Yeah. So in Second Thessalonians talks about a time when God allows his power to be used by wickedness and gives them power so that they, they will be. lead people astray because the people that lust after power and miracles 
will follow them. Yep. And it talks about uh, this is the one who's uh, in Second Corinthians two nine, who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they do not receive the love yep. of the truth to us yep. to be saved. Yep. For this reason, God will send on them a deluding influence so they will believe what is false. So the concept, it's it's God's kindness that you don't get our delusions blessed. Yeah. It's the guys, that, kindness, do, the guys that do get their delusions blessed, it's a judgment. Yeah, it's worse. Yeah, it's worse. Yeah, thank you, Gretchen. That was really good. <laughs> okay. Um, I was thinking about what you said about, you know, you can't just throw somebody out the window because, you know, 5% of their teaching is wrong. We're humans. Eventually something you say is going to be wrong. Just because of who we are. Yeah, and there's, and along with epistemology, that's true, God bless you. In epistemology, which is the study of knowledge, they have things, degrees of certainty. You have to, things don't come all the same. Every doctrine in the Bible isn't as certain in our minds as every other doctrine. Okay? There's a lot of debate about how old the earth is. Well, in my mind, that's not that certain. Okay, people can have their own idea of how old the earth is. That's fine. But I don't see that as certain, and I don't see it as a test of fellowship. If you say the earth is 6,000 years old or whatever somebody wants to say it is, well, maybe it is. I'll find that out when I get to heaven, but I don't know how old the earth is. And I study science, so I don't know who knows how old the earth is. Now, if you want to teach seminars on it, go ahead. Give your theory. But is that, I heard somebody say, well, if you don't believe how old the earth is the way I do, then you don't believe Jesus died on the cross. I heard a guy say that. And you know what he does? He brings shame to the, to the, to the body because Rob Bell heard that, and he wrote in his book to, to make fun of evangelicals because he heard that same guy say the same thing. And then he says, so you can't know anything then. So you have to believe this guy's theory about the earth, which, or you can't know that Jesus died on the cross. Well, that just gave ammunition to Rob Bell to make fun of the gospel. Don't say those kind of things. It's way more certain that Jesus died on the cross than I know exactly how many thousand years the earth is old. Amen. I don't know. All right. How do we get on that? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not going to blame you, Gretchen. You did a good job. <laughs> no, you, you did good. All right. Thorn in the flesh. Oh, wait. Oh, Gretchen. Just to... Just to... I hope to add what Bob is saying. The actual physical age of the earth doesn't mean that you don't believe in a literal six-day creation. I don't, I don't know. I have no theory about that. I've read everybody's theory. I've read the gap theory. I've read the days are literal theory. I read one. Wenham is the best one I read. He thinks they're literal 24 days, but it says nothing about how old the earth is. All of that. Okay. I don't know. I, I, so when I know, I'll preach it. <laughs> you all, you're all welcome. To, and, and you're all welcome. I think most people here probably believe, believe in young earth and that God created it all in seven literal 24-hour days. That's what most people believe. I'm not certain about that. Uh, yeah, Keith doesn't believe it. but We, we can be led astray by uh, all of these false teachers and so on if we don't know the word. So we have to stay in the Word in order to be able to discern when a person such as R.C. Sproul is right in keeping with the gospel and then when he's saying something that we don't believe. So discernment 
It only comes with staying in the Word. Yeah. In the word. Uh, another thing that helps, by the way, I, I love Lenski's commentary. Lenski's a conservative Lutheran. And he does a great job. But I'm telling you, the Lutheran thing is going to be there. But see, it's easy to not be led astray because I can see, I know, I know exactly what Lutheran dogma is. And so when it shows up in Linsky, I kind of just go, okay, roll my eyes, go to the next verse. But I'm not going to throw away Linsky because a couple times he tries to find infant baptism in places where it doesn't exist. Bob? Yeah, it seems to me that uh, we have our debatable issues uh well, like uh, young earth, old earth, etc., which is fun to debate, but is really not that critical. But yet you have the concrete, uh, un, uh, undebatable, rock-solid truth of the gospel that uh, the Jesus yeah. existed uh, as God for eternity, <laughs> came to earth, fully God, fully man. Uh, Amen. You know, I, I, I like good-natured debate. I thought well, the funniest one I saw in that, because there was a guy here who really believes in the old earth and he's trying to convince all his buddies that none of them will believe him. And so the guy that believes in the old earth was getting baptized and somebody from the shore yelled out, baptize him slow, he believes in old earth. (laughs) Okay. The important thing here is not how many days the the world was made or how whatever. The important thing is to pull those people back to the truth that God made it. He created it. Yep, yep. In order to create, you have to create something out of nothing. Yes. And only God can do that. That's the important yep, thing. Exactly. Not all these other things. Yeah, okay. So I didn't even want to get onto that topic because, like I said, if I ever have it totally figured out, then I'll tell you what it is. But I, I'm, you know, do you think it's a sin to say I don't know? Do you? Somebody was quoting Calvin as saying he wasn't going to, he didn't write anything about Revelation because he didn't understand it. It's not a sin to not understand something. I, you know, maybe I'm more weak-minded than a lot of other people. I, you know, who knows? Yeah. Well, all these ancillary issues are fun to debate and talk about, but sometimes don't they become a rabbit trail and take us away from preaching repentance and remission of sin? Well, I think so. I would say I commend people that teach creationism, whoever they may be, and if, they're, if they believe that the earth is 10,000 years old, that fine, maybe they're right. I'll find that out when I get to heaven. But it does hinge on having, knowing you're living in a theistic universe, that there's a creator that we did not evolve, and evolution is a lie. Eric did it. By the way, if you didn't listen to it, Eric covered a lot of this stuff in his apologetics. Uh, we have still two more left, and he did a fabulous job, absolutely fabulous job. And so if you haven't been here on Thursday night, you want to go on our website, TwinCityFellowship.com, under Bible Studies, and one of the classes is apologetics. And I commend it. Yes? I don't know if you're going to get to this, but I'm thinking in verse 6 to change topics, if I may. Please, uh, change back to the topic. Yeah. I will refrain so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. Now, he's an apostle. He's one of the, the ones who have been chosen by Christ to give revelation to the church for all time. Mm-hmm. What would it be to think more of him than is warranted? Well, 
I mean, to exalt him to be God or something like that would no, no, clearly be bad. It, it should be understood, Patrick, in the context of the false apostles he's battling. They're claiming visions. They're claiming status. They're claiming that they're hooper, hyper apostles or mega apostles or super apostles. They're making all those claims. So Paul can say, I'm an apostle too, and he does. He says, have I not seen the risen Lord? To the first Corinthians. But instead of getting in a battle of saying, I'm an apostle, I'm an apostle, he says, I am one, but here's how you know it. You see it in me. You yeah. can also say that when Paul gave his own opinion, he still stepped back yeah. from giving it as God and said, mm-hmm. it's my opinion that I say this. Yeah. If I took his opinion as, as being binding, then I'm thinking more of him than I ought because his opinion is not binding. Yeah, in First Corinthians 7, he gives his opinion that staying single is better, but he, then he says, but if you marry, you have not sinned. So he was not giving binding revelation. So Paul didn't consider his opinion as more valuable than somebody else's. Opinions are, everybody's got them, but, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, thorn in the flesh. This is our fun topic here. Thorn in the flesh. Because of the surpassing greatness of revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. This has, you can tell when people don't know what something is because there's more pages in the commentary. <laughs> You're going along and there's like so much and so much and then you get like six pages. Well, then you know they don't know. A bunch of issues here. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, that phrase could be attached to the end of the previous verse. And uh, some argue for that, but we'll just leave it where it is for now. There's some issues about grammar. There's some references about these revelations I want to look up. Uh, let's go to Carla. Carla, could you look up Genesis 32:25 and Karen, Job 2 and verse 7, and Luke 22:31-34. These have to do, I believe, with probably with Satan, or I think the first one has to do with Jacob. Okay, 32.25. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh, so the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Yeah, okay, what does that have to do with our verse here? Well, Jacob, Paul got a thorn in the flesh to keep him pinned to the earth, (laughs) to keep him from running off to heaven. That's what somebody said, it's a stake to pound in the ground to hold him on earth. (laughs) Because the word thorn could mean stake. Jacob was heel grabber, a supplanter, trying to get his own way by hook or by crook, you know. And then he wrestles with the angel, and he's smitten. And this this limp was a sign that God had prevailed over him. Okay, so it's sort of like a thorn in the flesh. That's his thorn in the flesh was his being smitten and limping. And the other ones are about Satan, Job 2 and verse 7. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. So Satan smote Job with boils because God gave him permission to. God gave Satan permission to do something to Job, but he couldn't kill him. Do you believe that God had Job's best interests in mind? Yes, absolutely. So Satan desires to attack us, but he only gets to do what God allows him to do. 
And if he does something God allows him to do, it's for our good. Absolutely. One of the more difficult attacks by Satan that ever came upon me, it wasn't actually directly to me, it was directed at people I know and love, drove me to preach the gospel more. Because I was thinking about that. What, what did Paul do when Satan attacked him? Preach the gospel more. So, if you want to keep Satan from attacking you more, preach the gospel more, because he'll, he'll, he'll decide it's a bad idea to keep attacking, because he doesn't like the gospel preached. And then we have Luke 22, 31 to 34. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that you, your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned away, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord... With you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. Okay. When did, did I say 34? Did you get that far? Okay. So Peter, had Satan got permission to attack Peter. Right? And what happened when Satan attacked Peter? He denied the Lord three times. And, but it wasn't the end of the story, was it? Not the end of the story. So Peter, one of the things about Peter was he was full of himself. And that's exactly what the thorn of flesh for Paul was designed to get rid of. Being exalted or full of yourself, however you want to look at it. That, and you might think, well, maybe is Paul just being melodramatic here? No. He is not being melodramatic. Okay, this the poison pill for Christian ministry is pride. It's a poison pill uh, to think that God needs me because I'm so talented is a poison pill. It'll ruin ministry. It'll ruin our effectiveness. It'll ruin our families and our churches and everybody else. And it's so hard to get out when you're a young guy in. Um, I know I'll just testify about me. During the decade of the 80s, I promise you, I was like that. I was full of myself. I was absolutely convinced that I was able to do whatever I needed to do. I was convinced that if something needed to change, I could change it. I was convinced that if I needed to do something different, I could just crank up my willpower and go do it. And I was even convinced that I could stay healthy no matter what happened around me. I was healthy, I was young, I was strong. And I was loud, and I was forceful, and all of those things. And it was harmful to the flock. And the Lord, first of all, straightened out my theology in 1986 so that my theology didn't help it, because I used to believe in human ability, so that didn't help me any. I got rid of that idea. And then I started going through a series of getting beaten, all right? by various events that happened that I had no control of, starting in 1992. My health went bad, family problems, problems in the church, problems here, problems there, and that went on and on and on and on. They didn't go away. And In fact, eventually I said, you know, I can't think of one problem in my life that I can do anything about. <laughs> okay, now what does that, what does that do? It does the exact same thing Paul's talking about. And I know what it did for me. It made me realize 
that the only way God was ever going to do anything good in me or through me was by his grace. And that my, my idea about my own ability is stinking, rotten, pride, and it's not even worth having. And if we could just be rid of that, something good might happen. That's what I found out. And if somebody would have sat me down in 1984 and said, Bob, that's your problem. In fact, some people did. <laughs> and I said, okay, I, uh, uh, whatever. I don't, it just like, I couldn't see it. couldn't see it. Go ahead. I'm going to read about Paul's problem. Here in Acts 15:36. Okay. The same Paul. He goes, After some days Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also, but Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, who had deserted them and Pamphylia and had not gone on with him to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left. Yep, he just wouldn't. I don't want to work with this guy. They had together built all the churches in, yeah. in Asia. We're going our way. Just, and it was over. And you never hear about them anymore. Yeah, it's the end of Barnabas. And Paul may have been the problem. Because later John Mark becomes useful, right? So Paul was wrong. Um, so maybe that's why you had a thorn in the flesh. For this reason, that's a therefore. There's three, three purpose clauses in here. Hina, in the Greek, in order that, is found three times. In order that, in order that, in order that. And the ultimate purpose is to keep me from exalting myself. Yes. And to add to that exact point, um, I recently had a pastor tell me that People shouldn't go to non-denominational churches because they're just started by pastors that are all puffed up with pride that don't want to be submissive to a particular denomination or, or a, you know, a group of people. And, you know, I got to meditating on that, and I was like, well, that's, that's kind of right in some instances, you know. Um, but I would rather be submissive to the Word of God than to some, you know, every, every denominational doctrine has Something wrong with it. Uh, yeah, and I'd rather be submissive to the word of God. But I, but I think he had a point, though. You know, I mean, when you look at some of these word, word of faith and things like that. Actually, what that is is a, an ad hominem argument. It's a logical fallacy, and we covered that. <laughs> Eric talked about that. It's, it's called a genetic fallacy. Is that right? It's the genetic fallacy, and that is judging something to be wrong before you even see what it is based on where it came from. So. That would be like what I was talking about earlier. Well, Linsky's commentary can't be any good. He's Lutheran. No, that's the genetic fallacy. Somebody can come from a lot of different places and tell you the truth. Now, as far as whether denominational or non-denominational churches have more pride and arrogance or problems going on, I think there's enough of that to go all around. <laughs> you know, I haven't exactly seen denominations keeping local pastors from going astray. If you listen to the stories that you hear from people that, that email, there isn't a single denomination that hasn't had some serious problems. I'm not saying there aren't faithful churches within various denominations, because there are. I think you have to just go church by church and do your own judgment. Yeah. We as human beings are enemies of God. Just by nature, we're dead in our sins. So much so that we can't, the natural man can't even receive the things of the Spirit of God because we hate God. Just hate Him. Just because of our natural 
humanity. Yeah. So God uses these trials and tribulations to beat us over the head like a two-by-four to get it to, to uh, reveal himself to us, and that's to strip away ourselves, to strip away our uh, own humanness so that he can, he can get our attention. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Amen. Uh, let me talk about something that I heard there was a discussion going on between some of you. You know, we talk a lot about means of grace and how God changes lives and how they're defined in the Bible. Someone was saying, but what about this or well, what about that? Uh, couldn't God, like what you said, maybe the two-by-four is a means of grace? Well, I am. All right. Uh, let me answer that. We, the difference is between the means of grace are revealed and ordained where God has attached a promise to them. God says, if you come to me in this way, by faith, I will meet you. If you come to me through the word, I will meet you because I said I would. And so we have an objective promise to attach our faith to, God and his promise. The two-by-four, <laughs> we'll use that metaphor, okay, Rich, the, 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 it is providence. It isn't means of grace, it's providence. It may be how God graciously works, but he's in charge of that. So, because if you, if, you don't, if you take that same idea and put us in charge of it, you'll end up with the monastery again. I'm telling you, if you don't have means of grace, you end up back at the monastery. Am I being melodramatic? No. Somebody just sent me a link to an article of one of the big evangelical churches here in the Twin Cities, and one of their pastors has a whole article about even having an evangelical monasticism and, and, and doing these Catholic practices. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Why do they go back to the monastery? Well, so does you, you, you cut loose from the means of grace and say, I think this makes me feel better. This makes me closer to God. The two by four. They used to, flag, what do they call it? Flagellation? They, they'd, they'd whip each other trying to become holy. Now, there's a, now, let me tell you something. There's a big difference between God whipping us and some monk that you asked to whip you. Because what you're saying then is I can't trust God to providentially work all things together for my good to conform me to the image of Christ. I have to be in charge of the entire process. Okay? I decide. <laughs> good one. Uh-oh. <laughs> I decide. And so I think what would work great for me is to join a monastery, sleep on granite slab so it sucks all the heat out of my body, hang on a wall with those shackles. That's a good one. That really gets you close to God. And then when you get off the shackles, have them whip you, and then see, now I'm holy. No. <laughs> you're, you're sore. You're dumb, too. <laughs> no. But see, that's where this thing heads. And providence, God's in charge of. Like that story about Dan, Daniel Shiesky. God is in charge of, if somebody has a dream that leads them to go to a church where they hear the gospel. That was God in his providence. But providence contains good and evil. So I just go about life. If I need flagellation, God is capable of doing that. I wrote an article about this once, and I talked about the people taking an oath of poverty. Okay? And here was my reasoning, because that was one of the monastic things, and there are evangelicals now doing that. They're taking oaths to, to live very, you know, get rid of their house. and That was in that article, right? They got rid of their house, gave everything away, went out into a, a ghetto, and now I'm more holy. Okay, here's the deal. 
We think we know what we need. We can't trust God to do it. And if, if, and if what we need to be holy is poverty, God is capable of giving you that. <laughs> it's real easy for God to give you poverty. And sometimes he does. Sometimes he does. And then that gets our attention. And we seek God. And we need to depend on him. But if we do it to ourselves... We're taking God's place, and that's offensive to God. If God said poverty is a means of grace, then by faith I could become poor and objectively believe that God was going to change me. But if God does not say poverty is a means of grace that he ordained for all Christians, which he did not, because Paul said he knew how to be poor or to be rich, then I can't say I have faith in that process because God never ordained it. Yes. Get back to the the topic of the of the thorn in the flesh. Yes, that's why it's not very credible that God's sticking Paul with one more cut in his back here after you've been beaten and whipped thirty nine yeah. times is this big thorn in the flesh because he's not the guy going to say I have an owie. That's bad. Yeah, uh, that's true. Uh, Paul was obviously a very hardy character because if he was still pre- ticking after oh, the licking. Remember the Timex commercial. <laughs> They'd put a Timex on a... This shows how old I am. I remember this. They'd put a Timex on a propeller of a boat and run it and then take it back out and take it off and, and it was still running. And then, and then the, 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 it said, takes a licking and keeps on ticking. <laughs> That's Paul. That's Paul. <laughs> I didn't go out and buy one. We used to call them Dimex. Uh, but anyhow... <laughs> Um, anyhow, God's in charge of that. God's in charge of that. Now, they're thorn in the flesh. There's, let me tell you the options here. Okay, either this is a personal thing or a physical one. It either had to do with relational things that were happening with people. This is at least the two theories that the scholars say are most credible, or it's physical. Now, I read a whole bunch of material on this, and I thought Barnett made a very good argument for the personal is the more likely. And one of his things that Barnett said was that it's hard to imagine that some physical ailment would be a thorn in the flesh to Paul because he's been beaten and pounded and de- deprived and hunger and whipped and stoned and left for dead, and, and he still goes. So it's hardly going to be the thing that keeps him from exalting himself. So, But have, be, being betrayed by somebody important to you is a lot harder to deal with. Absolutely harder. The personal will tear your guts out when the physical you'll just say, okay, now what do I have to do? I I can testify to that. You know, uh, because I've had both. And I'll take take the physical any day over the personal. Anybody ever have a, a child that you raised that ran off into sin? I'll tell you, that'll tear your guts out a lot harder if I could use that kind of crude terminology, but it is in the Bible, splachma. <laughs> uh, and um, if you get sick, or even if you, you, you... Look at humans. They just seem to persevere over any kind of thing. Have you noticed how people can just get beat up with sicknesses and ailments and disabilities and keep getting back up off the deck and, and to fight another round? But I'll tell you, when you, when you go through a serious 
betrayal with somebody that you love, who's close to you, it's, it's very, very difficult. And that, that'll humble you. That's really kind of the 92, the thing that brought me down, frankly. That's what brought me down to the point where I quit exalting myself. It took longer than that, though, because I was, I was a tough case. It didn't happen in one year. I think that that's right, but I can't prove it. Okay? Here's was given. Now, notice this. This is more about what I was saying about God's in charge of this process. You don't need to go to the local religious store and buy a thorn to stick in yourself. <laughs> Somebody would probably figure out a way of selling copies of Paul's sword, you know, and people would buy it. All right. It says, it was given to me. This is the divine passive. God is in charge of it. God gave it. The divine passive is when the passive is in the Greek. God's not mentioned as the object, but implied. And it's very common in the scriptures because of the Jewish desire not to pronounce God. There was given to me a thorn, literally a stake. So even what it is is debated because if you look through Greek literature, it could be the sort of stakes that they'd put around a, a city for defensive if there's a war so people couldn't crawl, crawl over the stakes because they'd get impaled on them. So that same scallops is the stake. And so if you look in the Greek literature, this is the only time it's used in the New Testament. In the Greek literature, it means a stake. But if you go into the Septuagint, it sometimes it's used as a thorn. And so is the Septuagint in the background here, or is it other uses in Greek? Let me show you the Septuagint using it as a thorn. Dick, Ezekiel 28, 24. Well, we'll, we'll use English. But. And then Larry, Numbers 33, 55. There's at least two instances. There's, there's other instances, but these two would be somewhat analogous. Okay, go ahead. Okay, Ezekiel 28, 24. And there will be no more... For the house of Israel, a prickling briar or a painful thorn from any round about them who scorned them. Then they will know that I am the Lord God. Okay, so here, the same word, uh, thorn, scallops, is used for the tormentors around Israel. So that, that's an interesting background, isn't it? Maybe that's what Paul's talking about here. Um, tormentors. Because it was a thorn that was around them. And then Numbers 33:55. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land, those you allow to remain will become barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. They will give you trouble in the land where you will live. So the people, if they don't wipe ever out the Canaanites, there'll be a thorn in their side. And what happened? <laughs> and it worked. They did not wipe them out, and they were. Still is. Okay, so there's two instances in the Septuagint where thorn is used for person, personal uh, afflictions from people around you. That's part of the evidence. Uh, one more, Becky, could you look up Hosea 2.8 when you get a chance? Hosea 2.8. So Dr. Martin, in his commentary, defends the idea that it had to do with adversaries based on the Septuagint use. And... Barnett gives some long arguments that he thinks this is probably a, a relational with people rather than physical, and he has some good arguments for that. And we see here that God allows this thorn. It was given by God through the agency of Satan. Who's in charge of Satan? 
God. Who thinks they're in charge of Satan? False teachers. The church. They don't bind Satan and order Satan around and tell Satan where to go and what to do. Well, Jude and Second uh, Peter call that a really bad thing. Revile angelic majesties. Okay, Hosea 2a. Therefore I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. Yeah, so the thorn bush is the same word. In that case, it would be God putting them around to stop something. Thorn. Uh, boy, i got two minutes. Thorn is... Um... Oh, yeah. We have a little request. There's a, a new article posted on CICMinistry.org under Articles and then Subset Scholarly. When you go to Articles, that you can have Worldview... Regular articles, scholarly. Click on scholarly, and the very top one is an article that is about that Keith wrote, and it's about the sons of God. And if you remember, I preached on that. Remember when I preached about the host of heaven and the heavenly council and how God put all the rulers of the nations under these things, and Israel is supposed to be directly under Yahweh? Well, Keith has an article that takes that whole concept and shows how God rules in a different way after, uh, as history goes on. And what we would like is this. This is a kind of a new thesis. There are others out there like Michael Heiser who have taught somewhat like this. But we realize that this is fairly new. And is it true or is it false? We want you to read it to judge. All right? Judge. If, if you think, no, I don't think you proved your case you're free to tell Keith he didn't prove his case. <laughs> okay, because that's what teaching... See, normally if we were like PhDs, we could go into a theological journal and let our peers judge it, but we're, we're not. It'll also go up under reference links. There'll be a link to the article. So if you listen out on the Internet, we invite you to do the same thing. Read the article. It's well written, and, but it needs to be judged. Okay, it needs to be judged. Well... Okay, did we sell them what the thorn in the flesh is? Not exactly. Okay, um, thank you. By the way, next week Eric is going to be making a presentation, and he is a PowerPoint man. Okay, so we're going to, just so you're forewarned, we're going to be set up this way, and he'll be here giving a PowerPoint, and the format will be he'll lecture directly for 45, 50 minutes with no questions, and then we'll have a discussion later. That's what we do on Thursday nights, and that works for his style. I'm kind of a freelance guy, you know. <laughs> okay. Uh, Eric likes to know this is what I'm going to say. Uh, so, okay, thank you, and uh, we'll see you upstairs today. I'm preaching on one of the Ten Commandments.